Yeah, it's Bob McCown. It's John with you on this uh, chilly. What is today? Tuesday. Tuesday. It's a Tuesday. Uh, and you it's are, a, it's, uh, a, it's Pearl Harbor Day, actually. Oh, yeah, the 7th, right? 7th of December. So that's that's do my listen 80 years ago today. Yeah, 1941, December 7th. Yeah, yeah, 80 years ago today. That was, when I was a kid, and when you were a kid, and maybe more well, for I you, wasn't a you, kid in 1941. No, 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 but we, but you know, when you grew up in the 60s, 50s, and 60s, Pearl Harbor Day was a big thing. Well, learn just learning, about learning it. about it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was, um, it was shocking really that that could happen and not that it happened not exactly that it happened but that the japanese warships were able to go as far as they did over i don't know a week two weeks yeah. however long the trip un basically undetected like a sneak attack what 3000 4000 miles away i don't yeah. even know yeah hard anyway, to i did i didn't mean to uh uh, to uh, change the topic there, but it's uh, just went down December December seventh, and uh, there are certain dates that uh, stick in your memory. Uh, we're going to talk baseball today uh, with our pal Buck Martinez, the uh, television voice of the Blue Jays and uh, former catcher, former manager, and a guy who's been through work stoppages before. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll talk to him when we come back after these messages. A chilly day here in uh, southern Ontario and across much of the country. And so how appropriate that we um, talk about baseball. Uh, Buck Martinez joins us from uh, sunny Florida still. Well, this morning it's actually a little bit foggy, but it'll burn off. By oh, it. what a shame. Yeah. What, yeah. what a shame. You know, it gets down into the upper 60s and it turns foggy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're, um, we're chagrined for you. Uh, we'll try and send help. I watched um, the uh, football game last night. It was pretty nasty in Buffalo, and I'm sure you guys got the same kind of weather, huh? Not, not as bad far. as that. Not as not bad, bad as that. But, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, two things I wanted to address specifically, because we haven't had a chance to talk since uh, Blue Jays made uh, a few moves in uh, uh, prior to the shutdown. Yeah. And uh, obviously, we want to spend some time talking to you about the work stoppage, because it's been a long time. Work yeah. stoppage? You work for these. management? You, you, you work stoppage. You that means you're a management guy. See, if you say lockout, you work for the players. If you say work stoppage, you're a management guy. What well, is whatever that it is, whatever it is. Well, you know. Um, well, let's start with the Blue Jays uh, roster moves. Yeah. Um, Barrios gets a new contract, which isn't an addition, but it is an important move, I think, for the ball club in uh, securing the long-term future of the organization. Tell me what you think of that move and tell me what you think of this guy overall as a pitcher. Well, Bob, I think it's a great move. Uh, and you pointed out the stability of the organization is huge. When you're trying to bring in other free agents, it, it speaks very well. You've got Springer signed for the long haul. Now you've got Barrio signed for seven more years. You've got great control of Manoa. You've got control of Vladdy and Bo. I think it speaks volumes about where the organization is headed. Uh, as far as Barrios individually, I think it's a terrific sign. He's a great athlete, first and foremost. And I always say that when you find the best starting pitchers, they're generally very good ball players. They understand the game. They're good athletes. They can feel their position. This guy's a gold glove fielder. And I think with the influence of Pete Walker, uh, the fact that Charlie Montoya is Puerto Rican like Barrios, I think that had something to do with it. He came in at a time when the Blue Jays were at home at Rogers Center. Uh, there was a lot of great excitement. Uh, and I, I just think he, he recognized that uh, Toronto is a pretty good place to be. And I, I applaud the organization and Barrios for extending that contract. I think it's a very good one and provides a solid foundation for that rotation. You don't think it's too long? No. You know what? I don't think it's too long. I, I, I think that he's the type of pitcher that's going to age well. I don't think Robbie Ray is going to age well because he's a hundred percent max effort guy on every pitch. He's a two pitch pitcher where Barrios has pretty good feel for his pitches. And if he loses in velocity, he can be like Frank Tanana where he can become a finesse pitcher and throw his curveball, his breaking ball, use the changeup. And I think, like I said, he's a great fielder and a good athlete. So I think he's going to age very well. So the Blue Jays now have four 
well, for lack of a better term, kind of front of the rotation types of starters, guys they think they can count on provided they're healthy. And of course, the tradition is you got to have five. And there's been a lot of chatter about that, who's going to be the fifth guy. And they do have candidates in the system. And I know you probably can't have too much starting pitching, but the way pitch starting pitchers are used today, Buck, how does that influence in your mind what you're looking for? Is that fifth guy as important today as he was 10, 15 years ago when the philosophy of how starting pitchers were used was different? Yeah, that's a great point because it's dramatically different from 10 to 15 years ago. There's no question about it. But I think the starting staff is very important. And I think that fifth guy is very important because you want to conserve as many innings out of your bullpen as you can. So I would just as soon have another veteran in that fifth spot, somebody that uh, is going to give you consistent innings, somebody like a Steven Matz or a Ross Stripling that is going to give you five, six innings a start, not seven or eight. That's just too much to ask. But I think the fifth spot's very important. And I think Six, seven, eight, nine, and 10 are equally important. You've got to have depth in your rotation, and it's going to take 10 or 12 starters to get through a season. And I think that's what's important. And Buck, the one thing that, uh, and we haven't asked you about Gosman yet, but we will. Um, but uh, the, right now, this, this pitching rotation is very right-handed. Is that yeah. fifth guy got to be left-handed? I mean, is that a key? I don't think so. And when you think of the rotation last year, they had three left-handers in the right. rotation with Ray Matz and Ryu. So I don't think that's really necessary. I want five good pitchers. I don't think it makes any difference in this day and age, whether lefty or righty, because everything is so different. You know, they play the shifts and there's not too many dramatic pull hitters uh, that are really successful. I think you have to have pitchers that can pitch and get people out, whether they're right-handed or left-handed. So I, I don't think lefties made a difference last year, and I don't think righties will make a difference in 2022. Well, you mentioned Barrios and, and how he pitches and how he may mature. Mm -hmm. Does that factor in on the decision? And, and I would look at, I don't know whether it was Ray versus Gosman, but they signed contracts that were almost identical in terms of, of statistics and length. Right. Um, is Gosman a better risk over five years because of the way he throws i believe so and as i said i, I gave you my thoughts about robbie ray with his 100 percent effort and the fact that last year was basically an outlier to his career kevin gosman has gradually gotten better and as we have seen over the years pitchers that come out of lsu don't start out very well because they're abused in college and that's where gosman pitched in college and he pitched a lot and he probably overused himself and it took him a few years to regroup and get back to health physically and now he has scrapped his sinking fastball and his slider basically he's a two-pitch pitcher he throws a four-seam fastball and a splitter now the splitter is a terrific pitch that relies on velocity as well but i think gosman's in a good spot he's learned the last couple of years how to manage his pitches and he's been encouraged by the analytics to scrap the sinker and scrap the slider and just go with his two best pitches and i think that's what we're seeing more often than not yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the lsu thing what are they it's a band box in baton rouge or what no no no. they always pitch for a college world series so they abuse their good pitchers oh i see <laughs> ben mcdonald is a perfect example of guy he was the most dominant pitcher in college when he came out of lsu and he signed with the orioles and he never really developed as as we all expect that he might but uh lsu has always had a history of good pitching unlike vanderbilt where vanderbilt's pitchers come out of there in pretty good shape and, um, you know, uh, in Vanderbilt, uh, I think they take real good care of their pitchers. But uh, LSU, back in the day, I, I think they were always focused on the College World Series. Uh, when the season ended, um, you and I and John had uh, at least one, probably two conversations about what the Blue Jays would do with their free agents. Um, you know, we talked about, well, maybe they'll sign one. Hopefully they'll sign two. They almost no chance to sign all three. And they wind up signing none. Yeah. Is that a big deal? I don't think so, Bob. I think when they signed Robbie Ray and Marcus Simeon, they will sign one-year deals. And I think it was uh, probably behind closed doors. They all felt like we got to get the best out of them this year because we're not going to be able to bring them back. And the depth they have in their organization is pretty deep in the infield. And not that anybody's going to come up and replace Marcus Simeon and what he did last year. 
But I think the $18 million gamble paid off very well for Marcus and for the Blue Jays. The Blue Jays got everything they could have possibly hoped for from Simeon. And he got a great seven-year contract. The same with Robbie Ray. Robbie Ray gambled on Pete Walker and the Blue Jays, and he hit the jackpot as well. He signed very quickly, signed an $8 million deal. And I just don't think that anybody in the organization legitimately felt that they were going to bring either one of those two back. Now, Stephen Matz is a different story. I mm -hmm. thought they wanted him back. I know they made a good offer to him, and I thought he would fit because I think he's going to age well. And I think he's going to be a guy that will pitch better and better as he gets a little bit older because he's got a pretty good arsenal of pitches. So it's going to be interesting. But I thought he might be the guy. And I think they made a run at him early on to test the waters and see if he was interested. But it turned out that he was more happy to go back to the National League and pitch in St. Louis. Uh, I, assume, I assume. Go ahead, John. Sorry. No, I, I just uh, what what is it? We, we, we've talked a ton about pitching and, and the Jays and all of this what is it about pete walker i mean what what is is he like is he merlin the magician or what is it no he's not a magician he's a, a guy that understands people and when you get new players in your organization i think the one thing that pete does very well is he sits back and he asks questions he asks the pitcher tell me about your pitching style tell me what works when you're good tell me what problem is when you're bad and then Pete will take that information and put it to good use and kind of trust his experience to get the best out of those pitchers. And I think that's what he does. And he, he had a subtle adjustment with Alec Manoa early on, moved him to the middle of the rubber. He did the same with Barrios in the middle of the season. And, of course, Robbie Ray. I mean, look what he did with Robbie Ray, just convincing him that your stuff is good. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest thing about a coach you have to make a player feel like you're doing what's in his best interest. And I think Pete has gained the trust of all of his pitchers. And if he gives you something, they're going to run with it and put it to good use. Well, um, with the loss of Semyon, it does open a hole, as you indicated, in the infield. Um, it opens a hole right now at second base. And we can have a debate over whether they need a third baseman, a more classic third baseman, a power hitting third baseman, which is you usually look at the bat as much as the defense there. But Espinal did a good job defensively. And in terms of on base, he was pretty good too. But he's not going to give you any power. No, he didn't drive any runs. And you have Biggio, and you're not even sure with the injury what Biggio is going to give you, although he showed some signs in September of being a little bit better. But if you look at his minor league career, just getting to the majors was a bit of a surprise. And you're not exactly sure what you're going to get. So are they going to make other moves to shore up those two positions in the infield, in your opinion? Uh, I believe they will. And, and I think the thinking right now is that Kevin Biggio is more like the player they saw in 19 and 20 than the player they saw in 21. And if he's that, he can give you uh, adequate offense at second, decent defense, and Espinal can platoon with him at second base. My target would be a third baseman, a legitimate classic third baseman. It would be great if they could swing a deal to get Matt Chapman. If you could get Matt Chapman from Oakland, and it would take a ton, but at the same time, Oakland is in the mode of rebuilding right they're not going to want to pay matt olson or matt chapman and i think the blue jays have enough pieces now in their system where they can make a big blockbuster deal and get a matt chapman to play third base and then you've solved many issues terrific defense uh he allows Bo to play a little bit more up the middle because chapman's got phenomenal range to his left Bo can shade more up the middle. That will make him a better shortstop, and then second base will take care of itself. But one thing that I think you have to remember about the Blue Jays is they have offense in unusual positions. They have three big-time offensive producers in the outfield, maybe four if you count Critchick. And then they have offense at shortstop, traditional offense at first base in Vladdy, exceptional offense in both of those two positions. So your offense isn't as crucial at second base as it would be at third base for me. Well, here's one. I don't, I can't remember if I, if I threw this at you, but I know John will, will roll his eyes at this because one of the things that I've said repeatedly is 
Fernandez had a great year um, and a year that didn't wasn't quite as under the microscope as it might have been because in many ways we were all watching what was happening, you know, with Guerrero and, and, um, you know, and Bichette. Mm-hmm. Having said that, he's going to command a big dollar. You've got big dollar contracts coming up with those two guys and others. Timing is always key in any transaction you make. Would you even contemplate trading him? Because he is the kind of piece that might get you that. Um, I don't know about Chapman because Oakland tends to want kids. Right. But would you contemplate that? That would be a hard one. Because you have brought him along from basically a non-prospect. When they got him, he was a non-prospect. He was just to throw in and they got him and said, okay, and um, it's uh, interesting how well he has come along. And I don't think you want to disrupt that. I mean, he's as good a hitter, and we have categorized this a couple of times. He's put up Jose Bautista numbers mm-hmm. for a short period of time and uh, Edwin Encarnacion type of numbers. So I don't think you give that away. And, yeah, it's going to cost you some money. But at the same time, Ryu's contract comes off the books in two years. And there's another $20 million you can have. And now they've got a little bit of uh, payroll certainty with Barrios. Manoa's not going to hit money for a while. Uh, Pearson, if he turns out to be the starter, you hoped he would. He's not going to get any money. Vladdy and Bo are the two guys you've got to really focus on. So I think you can sure. afford to have Hernandez, Vladdy, and Bo. And so, so long term, you know, Bob's been on the Hernandez thing for months. So yeah, and uh, it makes sense. It makes sense where he is in his age and the fact that he's had three outstanding seasons. Yeah. yeah. But does it is it a given though? Is it a given though, Buck, that Guriel or Hernandez aren't with this team long term? One of the two? No, I, I you know the Blue Jays love Guriel as a hitter. Right. And, you know, I will never concede that he's a gold glove outfielder, even though he's been picked as a gold glove finalist a couple of times, but he can really hit. Mm. And I think he's only going to get better and better. Uh, So, you know, I mean, I think you've got three outfielders right there that are in the prime of their career that you could keep for another three or four years. And Gurriel is cheap. He's signed. Yeah, remember remember when Gurriel got that contract having never played a game and got, what, was seven for seven, something like that? Oh, yeah. And I think we all kind of went, what? What do they see in this guy? A guy who may never play a game in the major leagues, given that kind of a deal? Well, that's turned out to be a pretty good deal. Bloodlines. Bloodlines. His father was a great player. His brother's a great player. And I'll give you that. Deeper than the stats, that's for sure. Well, um, you think there's more to come, but we got to wait till after oh, yeah. this works. No, there's more to come. There's no question about it. They're, they're going to get another starting pitcher or two. They're going to get another reliever or two. They're probably going to get a veteran infielder. And then you keep your fingers crossed if uh, or Lopez or Martinez or Groshans or somebody like that comes on and, and, and develops as they expect. But, uh, you know, I don't know that they're locked in as much on Pearson as they were a couple of years ago. I mean, he's got to earn this now. He has oh, yeah. to earn this. He's got to come out and pitch and he's got to show them that he can pitch. He, he just doesn't throw enough strikes to be effective either as a reliever or as a starter. And he's got to overcome that. All right. Here's, here's maybe the toughest one. Come July one. Who's the starting catcher? <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know what I think. I think Gabe Marino is going to be the starting catcher. Yeah. Well, I, I just think he's uh, he's special. And, you know, he had a terrific fall league. Uh, I have watched a kid now last year in spring training. Every time he stepped on the field, it, it just screamed big leaguer. Uh, I see a lot of uh, two truies uh, from Philadelphia. I see that same type of body, that same type of command. He's got a good bat. He's got a special bat. And um, I just don't think uh, this is my my feeling. I, I don't think that Jansen, uh, Kirk, or McGuire uh, are are long term everyday catchers where this kid could be. And he's an athlete, you know. He's a former infielder that has made the conversion. And I know they played him at third base. And they go, oh, yeah, they're talking about versatility. If you have a frontline catcher that can catch 120 games for you in this day and age and hit, you've got something special. Well, How long does it take for a catcher to mature, Buck, in that position? Games. 
That's just all. games, eh? Everything is done for you now, John. I mean, you you, you go out of the uh, dugout and you've been crammed with computer information all day long. And um, he's a sharp kid, and he won't be able to handle that. But you know, when I started catching, it was like go out and catch, and then come back and tell me what you think. <laughs> <laughs> but it's totally different now. I mean, they've got catching coaches, they've got pitching coaches, sit with catchers, they've got armbands and everything else. It's just games. He just needs to get out there and catch and see. You know, when I came up to the big leagues, I came from A-ball. There were pitchers on my team I couldn't catch, let alone pitchers that I couldn't hit. I mean, they had stuff that I'd never seen before. But Gabe's been coming along. He's played a little bit in winter ball. He was the Arizona Fall League, and I, I think he's going to be fine. Well, but you're going to go to spring training, as things said right now, with four catchers. Uh, yeah. uh, one who's the catcher of the future and three guys who are all uh, have had their That's crack good. at being number one. Yeah, exactly. I That's think too many, that right? You'll probably see one of these catchers moved. One mm -hmm. of the other three catchers moved before the start of spring training. I think, uh, you know, as much as everybody is uh, enamored with Kirk and his hit ability, I just don't think he's going to hold up for the long haul. I mean, physically, it just I just can't imagine that he could uh, under, undergo the rigors of everyday catching uh, at his weight. It's just too much. Don't disagree. All right, let's take a quick break. And we'll come back and we'll talk about um, the work stoppage, the lockout, and Buck's reflections on uh, a few years ago when uh, this was a common occurrence in baseball. It seemed like every couple of years we had one of these. We've now gone 25 years, more than 25 years without one. There's a whole generation that doesn't know what's going on. We're going to try and explain it to them when we come back after these messages. Bob McCallum is John Shannon and Buck Martinez, the former catcher, former manager of the uh, Toronto Blue Jays, now the uh, television voice. Well, you went through this. You were a player rep during how many lockouts? One or two? I was a player rep probably for the last five, but I uh, started in 69. The first work stoppage was 72. When they, there was a strike in 72, there was a lockout in 73, a lockout in 76, a strike in 80, a strike in 81, 85 was uh, another strike. So the, the, the encouraging thing about this, there's never been a game lost in the regular season under a lockout. And there have been uh, several different lockouts, but whenever they lock out, it seems as though they come to an agreement. Uh, strikes a different story. And Manfred addressed this. The commissioner addressed it when he suggested that the lockout was an offensive tool to try to move along negotiations. Well, Players Association said, well, we don't need any motivation. We're here to get a deal done. But at the same time, there's never been a game lost under a lockout. So that's kind of um, upbeat. And I, I'm optimistic about that. But yeah, it's been a tough time. And you make a great point. There has never been... There, there's not an active player that's ever right. been through a work stoppage. And that's the last player was Bartolo Colon, and he's done. But the last work stoppage was 95. So it's like 27 years. It's been a long time. Yeah, guys like us remember that stuff and remember with fear because it cost games. Yeah. And you're right. It was strikes rather than lockups. And, and dare, I re dare I remind people in Montreal, it might have cost them the World Series. Well, yeah. It's hypothetical, and, and, but they it were pretty good. It happened in Montreal a couple of times because Montreal benefited one time because they won by a half a game with the Cardinals. Right. right. Well, and then there was then there was Black Monday, though, Buck. Then there yeah. was Black Monday. <laughs> <laughs> you can still see that home run going over. Oh the God! <laughs> I you know I've never I, you know and I wasn't a, I wasn't very much of an Expos fan, but I loved the fact that there was a Canadian team that close. Yeah. And to see that ball go over and, and to see him run around the bases at Olympic Stadium, oh, my goodness gracious. <laughs> they had a couple of great teams there. That team and then a 94 team was a tremendous team. Yeah. So compare the issues, if you can, of the kinds of stuff from, you know, the decade, more than the decade where you were involved to sure. what you see now. Well, initially, there were a lot of issues that were very, very black and white. The reserve clause before 76. I mm -hmm. mean, uh, players couldn't move. There was no free agency. And uh, pension was a big fight in the early going in 72. Players wanted their pension funded and they wanted it tied to TV revenue. 
And then salary arbitration became a big deal in 76 and free agency in 76. And uh, in 85, it was a very crucial period because Peter Uberoff was the commissioner at the time in 85 and salary arbitration and pension were the two big issues. In 1983, the owners had agreed to a TV contract for a billion dollars. And all of a sudden the money was real and the players had their pension funded by the TV revenues and they wanted their fair share. And initially, before that billion-dollar contract, the TV revenues were shared one-third to the Players Association for the pension funding. So now the players wanted one-third of a billion dollars, mm. and that wasn't going to happen. But there was a solid fight in 85 because what had happened was the owners had realized in order to beat the union, you have to split the union down the middle. And that's what they did with pension. The older players wanted their pension. Right. Salary arbitration was an issue that was dear to the younger players. And in 85, I broke my leg. So I was in New York in the offices and I was answering phones and talking to players and doing a lot of that. And we had a tremendous division. The young teams were all for salary arbitration. They don't care about pension. Let's give up the fight. We don't want another strike. The older teams would say, I don't care about salary arbitration. The younger players have to earn their money. We're not going to give them salary arbitration. So that was a big fight and a big division. And eventually, when we got the settlement in 85, I think we missed 56 games, the owners were very upset at Peter Ubera, the commissioner, because they figured that he sold them down the river and gave them a bad deal, and they eventually would fire him. Right. And then they got into collusion after the 85 agreement. So they went together and colluded on free agents and all of the prices were the same and it eventually would cost them over $260 million in uh, legal lawsuits because they colluded. And in the basic agreement, players couldn't go together in concert and owners couldn't go together in concert to negotiate contracts. And that's what happened with the owners because they felt like they had a bad deal in 85. So that cost them dearly because there were triple damages to the free agents that had their contracts depressed because of that. So there's been a history of back and forth, but you're right in 94, uh, the big issues, uh, you know, was TV contract once again, they got a big contract in 88 over a, million, a billion and a half in 88. So in 1990, there was another lockout they wanted more of the money. And it's always been about pension arbitration and free agency, basically. And that's what it is once again. The players want uh, earlier free agency. They want earlier arbitration. And, um, you know, they want universal DH. There's a lot of things that are going back and forth. But I think one thing that the Players Association has to remember, you can't get everything back in one negotiation. And Marvin Miller always told us that initially. In the early 70s, the owners had the hammer. There's no question about it. Sure. No free agency. You got a contract and, you know, my salary was $10,000 a year in 1969. And you have a good year and you'd get a $500 raise. And that was it. And take it or leave it. And I remember Johnny Bench in 70, 71, 72, they were paying him peanuts and he was the best player in the game. Mm -hmm. But that was the nature of the rules. So now you have a situation where free agency isn't free agency because of draft uh, pick compensation. So there are restrictions tied to free agency. Qualifying offers also a restriction and all of that. So there's a lot of things that restrict free agency. It's not truly free agency anymore. So they're going to have to amend that a little bit, but it's going to be a give and take for sure. But I think um, in this climate that we're in right now, in the world, neither side can afford to have any kind of work stoppage. They can't miss games. Correct me if I'm wrong, but my perception of this is that the players want to speed up the arbitration process. They want players to be eligible for arbitration quicker than they are now. And that the owners have countered by saying, okay, but uh, then you can't become a free agent. And I think the number was age 29. Um, is that, first of all, is, as you understand it, is that at least part of this equation? Yeah, I, I think you're right. And um, 
you know, the, the one thing, the, another thing that impacts what you just said is the uh, service time manipulation. Right. That has a big impact in it. And that's how they're trying to resolve this, is get over the service time manipulation where Vladdy was held down until the end of April. Chris Bryant was held down for a month. Yep. So they get seven years of control versus six years of control, right. which under the rules, you and I would do the same thing. Sure. We, and that's, that's just the way it is. Players Association is saying, we want the best players on the team as soon as possible. So if Vladdy is the best first baseman or DH or whatever, he should be on the team out of spring training. And the fans would argue that as well. So you have to take away that service time manipulation and eliminate that. So I think that's an issue. Uh, another thing I think is the tanking issue where teams don't put any money on the field. They don't want to spend. They don't want to win. They figure if I'm going to win 75 games, I don't care if I win 82 games because I'm still not going to make the playoffs. So there's no incentive to win games. There's almost an incentive to lose games to get a mm -hmm. higher draft pick. Mm -hmm. I have a solution to that, which oh, I okay, go ahead. Very, very interesting. If you have 30 teams in the game, the first 10 teams with the best record get picks number 11 through 20. The 11th team gets the first pick in the draft. Over the season record, the 11th team gets the first pick. They get 11 through 20. They get the first 10 picks in baseball. Hmm. The 10 worst teams in baseball get the last 10 draft picks. But so I you incentivize those teams. If you don't make the playoffs and if you're the 11th best record in baseball, you're going to get the number one pick. So that makes you push to the end. But if you're perennially bad, Buck, you're going to be perennially bad for a long time if you don't have good bad draft picks. Well, if you're brutally bad, you shouldn't be in the game. You should be able to develop. I mean, Tampa Bay is a perfect example of that. They yeah, Tampa, Bay, Tampa, Bay is the, Tampa Bay is the, is the greatest answer to every question uh, that, that, that exists on the management. They're an anomaly, John. There, there's no, are, there's no blueprint that, that says, well, we, we should be able to do what Tampa Bay does. Nobody's been able to do it. Nobody has been able to do it, but that's another thing that I don't understand is why people don't understand what they're doing. How can they develop pitchers as often as they do? And they do a better job of anybody in baseball identifying other teams' players yeah. that have not developed yet. And well, okay. And, and how many how many management willing. people, how many management people are now former Tampa management people are now through major league baseball because they have the secret sauce. Well, and I don't know if that's the case as much as it's a reputation. You okay. know, you know, well, they all played for Tampa Bay. They're all going to be good. I don't know. You know, Charlie Montoyo and uh, Rocco Baldelli and Derek Shelton and now Matt Quattaro. They were all coaches in Tampa Bay. And now the first three of them are managers and Quattaro's being interviewed for the Mets. That has more to do with, I think, their success than what they have learned in Tampa Bay. I think the team has had success. But at the same time, there's something going on there in their minor league system that allows them to develop their own players. Mm. But more importantly, if you look at their roster, most of their players have come from somebody else. <laughs> they do a great job of scouting other organizations. And I think that's what's missing now is however they work their analytics or their scouting, they're doing a better job than everybody else of identifying players. Because when they pick up players, you go, well, what's he going to do for them? And then they end up being World Series participants yeah well there's another factor here too i'm intrigued as to whether you agree with this tampa bay is unafraid to trade their star players um they are as willing as any organization to move guys when they think it's the right time and we have looked at it for a long period of time and said they're doing that because of economic reasons and there may be some truth in that that they have a limit this guy's going to be asking for a lot of money next year, so they're going to get rid of him. I don't think that's all of it. I think a lot of it is understanding that at this point in time, we can maximize our return. Sure. And it's why I, I, I'm going to circle back here, Mark. It's, it's why I mentioned Hernandez over and over again. 
Not that I don't, I don't think he's capable of, of doing this over and over again, but is he going to be tangibly better at any point in time? That's Maximize true. the value, yeah. especially when it relates to economics. And the economics of Tampa are they've only got so much money to spend. The economics of the Blue Jays is in a couple of years, they're going to be spending hundreds of millions of dollars. And are you going to put another $25, $30 million outfielder on that list? You probably can't. Some thoughts yeah. on, on those observations. That's a great, great comparison. And, and Kevin Kiermaier falls into that. Right yes, now. he does. They're talking about Kevin Kiermaier. I mean, he's the best center fielder in the American League for me. He's not a hitter. He's not an offensive player, but he's a very good center fielder. And he's a game changer defensively. Now he's making about $12 million. Is he going to be any better from this point forward? And I think you're right on the money with that. And they have done that with several other players when we think, I mean, what has David Price done since he left Tampa Bay? Theoretically, I mean. Well, he had, he had that great run with Toronto. but he had a great run with Toronto, but and now it's like David Price in Boston. and Lost now. Yeah. He's just, he just, just counting his money. That's all he's doing. And then, you know, James Shields is another guy and Blake Snell is another guy and they, they have a good, they do a great job of forecasting what these players might be, but everybody has the same information. Yeah. That's what I don't understand and how everybody can't put that together and say, you know, it's kind of like when Glavin and Maddox and Smoltz were all pitching, I, I kept thinking, why doesn't everybody else do the same thing they're doing in their training and their, you know, in their, planning and, and they work out and what their routine is but uh, nobody seems to want to copy those things they'll copy a lot of other things but they won't copy what tampa bay is doing buck where in, in the negotiations where's revenue sharing and all of this how important is it because i mean when you think of tampa you think of revenue sharing as well yeah and you know what the players are asking for a reduction in revenue sharing to kind of motivate the teams into winning i think that's another aspect of why they're doing that and they're suggesting 100 million dollars in reduction of revenue sharing I think revenue sharing is important because there are teams in Tampa Bay, they don't draw. They have a very good TV contract, which is uh, funding their organization, obviously, but they have 7,500 people in a game. Yeah. And um, there are other teams that don't draw well too. And I, I just think revenue sharing is a chip. I think they're going to be trading chips back and forth. I think there are things that both sides understand we can live without, but we're going to demand them right now. Yeah. But yeah, by the way, by the way, TV money in the United States for regional sports networks, it's not going to be going up very often now. It's going to, it might have plateaued already. Well, yeah. that's a big point. You know, and, and, that, and that's that, what the owners are saying. They're using uh, that as a, oh, as yeah, a big they're stick. using that too. But I mean, how do we know? I mean, there's going to be other, there's going to be other entities that come into the game. Like they're, sure. have been. they're going to be streaming and all this other stuff. And there's going to be competition for those games too. So yeah. I don't know if there is a cap on it. I don't know if there is a, a lid on it because uh, you just never know what's around the corner. Yeah. I mean, who would have thought we'd be watching Eli Manning and Peyton Manning on Monday Night Football doing an alternate broadcast of the same game? Yeah, there's another 2 million people watching, that's for sure. Hey, the other one is playoffs. Um, I think, do you see the playoffs expanding? Yes, I do. I, I think we saw in 2020 how exciting it was and how everybody got stayed into the hunt in September. I think expanded playoffs. And another thing, and it doesn't sound like it's going to happen in this negotiation, but I don't think expansion's too far down the road. I mean, 32 teams, that sounds like the right number. 32 teams sounds like the right number. And, and you know, as much as Oakland and Tampa Bay are struggling to have new ballparks and, you know, both of their ballparks are a joke in this day and age of all of the beautiful stadiums in football and arenas and basketball and stadiums and baseball, to have those two ballparks in the major leagues is a joke. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think they're considering expansion because of the expansion revenues. You know, it'll cost you a billion dollars to get a new team, and the owners would love to split that up again. No, and uh, actually, that's an interesting one. In hockey, uh, the players get zero money of the expansion fee. Is it the same in baseball? Yeah, it is. Okay, so there's definitely going to be expansion then. There's going to be expansion, <laughs> of course. <laughs> Isn't it interesting how they always say it's not about a money about the money, and it always goes back to being about the money. <laughs> yeah. 
you don't, I, I take it from your tone and the things that you've said that you don't expect this work stoppage to impact the regular season next year. Do you expect it will impact spring training? I, I think it could impact spring training. I think just because of the urgency of that message. I mean, when you start shutting down spring training sites, when communities are impacted by it and, uh, you know, Florida, of course, uh, it's booming right now. Things are crazy down here. The hotels are packed, restaurants are packed, malls are packed, everything is going crazy. So I don't know if it'll have that much of an impact in Florida. I don't think it's the same in Arizona. But uh, missing games is a, uh, whether it's spring training or the regular season, that's a big red flag. And, and I don't think either side, like I say, the climate in the world right now isn't for any kind of uh, work stoppage over dollars and cents. And that's not going to be something that With, either side wants to send a message. Diffi uh, difficult to justify when you saw all that free agent money go that week before, yeah. you know? The so game difficult. Safe. I mean, and, and people always ask me, how in the world can the owners spend this kind of money? So because they can afford to. Yeah. They, they wouldn't spend it if they didn't have it. Yeah. And they know what it means to spend that money as far as future revenues. And you spend that money. And when you see those contracts and Seeger and Simeon signed for what, half a billion dollars in a couple of days. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. There's a lot of money in the game. You think are the, you talked about the, the split between veterans and young players when in, in 85, are the, are the players unified? I think they are, John. And, and the reason I say that is because one of the big vocal leaders is Max Scherzer. And when you have Max Scherzer leading the pack, and obviously he could walk away from the game right now and never have to worry about another day. But he is right there leading the players. And you've got Scherzer and you've got Justin Turner and you've got Andrew Miller, a lot of prominent players that have made a lot of money and have been involved for a long time are really involved actively in this negotiations. And I think that's a good thing. So I think the players are unified. I think the last couple of years of free agency, I think, you know, even going back to the Bautista and Connacion free agent, I think that was a beginning of it where people said well this isn't really free agency mm. and i think another thing that we haven't talked about is the concern over the veteran player that can help you win games not getting fair contracts as far as the player association is concerned because i mean there are a lot of guys around uh, kevin pillars of the world that could help a good team as an extra outfitter you know they're not going to be offered reasonable contracts for the service time they've put in so we are not that far removed from Major League Baseball not playing games and playing games in an empty stadium. Let's take the other side quickly before we wrap it up. What if this work stoppage extends into the regular season? Everybody says severe damage is going to be done to the game for some extended period of time. Do you buy into that? Or is it a temporary blip? Are you really in danger of losing fans over a work stoppage? The rich getting richer philosophy. Yes, I think you're really in danger of losing fans. I think the NFL has seen it. I think the NBA has seen it. I think people are saying, you know what? Last couple of years, I realized I can get by without baseball. And I think a lot of people have gone their separate ways now and they said you know what we had a pretty good summer in 2020 before baseball was there we were doing family things we were going on trips we were going camping we were doing a lot of other things and realized that they didn't have to be glued to that television or go down to Rogers Center every single night so I think it is a very serious issue that if they do have another disruption I think a lot of fans and I hear it all the time from fans saying, you know I don't watch anymore mm. yeah I do and too I'm sure you hear that too I, I don't do. watch anymore when religiously in Toronto for years and years and years, you couldn't talk to a person that didn't know what the Blue Jays did the night before. Right. Yeah. The, inter the interesting thing for me is, is for baseball. And I think it's specific for baseball because there's 81 home games is I think there's a real need to make baseball still affordable. And if you end up, I mean, you know, you, you buy a hockey ticket, buck. if you buy a good hockey ticket now, you know, it's, it's $300. It's, it's 200 in Toronto. It's, it's, it's over 200 for a good basketball ticket. Um, baseball used to be affordable and that's changing. And I don't, th I, I think that that's something that they really have to guard against. 
<coughs> that is such a great point because for 81 games, how many families, mother, father, two kids can go to a ball game once, let alone multiple times during a season. And I think that was the beauty of baseball when we grew up and obviously economics were much different, but even early on, you could go to Rogers Center and get a ticket in the upper deck and, and it was affordable. It was, mm -hmm. it was comparable to going to a movie, yeah. something like that. And now it's not the case anymore. But what I don't understand, and I'm not privy to all of the information economically, but if you're making so much money from TV, how come you have to make so much money from the tickets and the in-park experience? That's uh, one thing that gets me. And I know- Well, because you can't. I mean, that's the answer, I guess. Yeah. You keep raising prices till people say no. And yeah, but that, with that, that are, are we at that watershed moment? Are we at that point? Well, you'd like to think so if you're a paying fan. Boy. I mean, I, I, I hearken back to this, and Buck, you, you probably have heard me say this too, and you, I'm sure you know the answer to this. 1977, the Toronto Blue Jays are born, and the most expensive seat back at the old CNE Stadium. The most expensive seat cost how much? Probably twelve dollars. Seven fifty. Yeah, seven dollars yeah, and fifty cents was the actually, highest price ticket. But but, and, yeah, yeah. but here's the here's the here's the addendum to that: the Los Angeles Dodgers at Chavez Ravine, you know, storied franchise, blah blah blah, Hollywood. Their most expensive ticket, four dollars and fifty cents. Yeah, but but I mean, that's when the Blue Jays payroll was seven hundred thousand in total. I get and all that. Bill Singer had a hundred thousand of that. I you know get I mean? all that. I mean, but but when you if you put it in terms of what fans can assimilate, it it has much greater impact. Absolutely. I mean, I I used to be a I I used to be a a Blue Jays season ticket mini pack guy. Even that got expensive. Yeah. Even that got expensive, and well, that's. I think the concern is that when you don't allow families to bring their kids to the game, you're cutting off your future fans. Correct. A hundred percent correct. I mean, when we were kids, you know, we'd get on a bus and everybody go to Candlestick Park and you'd pay a dollar to get in and you became giant fans. And you'd shiver yep. and you'd shiver. But other than that, it was okay. <laughs> you're a hundred percent right. Look, yeah. we, we got, uh, we have no more time. We got to go and you got things to do. You probably got to work on your golf game. I hear All it's right. Good to be with you, as always. Lots of fun. Thanks, pal. If we don't talk to you, have a happy holiday. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Buck Merry Martinez. Christmas to you too, Buck. Back after these messages. Well, our thanks to Buck Martinez for joining us. Always fascinating. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I really am concerned um, that uh, with everything that's going on, um, and it's not just baseball, but we're, we're pricing sports out of the family uh economy out of their budget and 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 they, we're going to be so reliant on television and people are going to just watch it on television which is going to improve the tv revenues but at the same time it's it's not going to be near the same as being able to go to a game bob in any sport well i don't disagree with you but it's a theoretical approach as long as you know, the Toronto Maple Leafs keep raising their tickets. Toronto Raptors keep raising their tickets. It's not mm -hmm. just baseball. And until people start saying no yeah. in significant numbers, this is what you're going to see. You know, but I, you know, I'm 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 old as dirt and I'm almost as old as you, and Terrible. I still I still remember in the in all four major sports, five if you include the Canadian Football League, my first game. In all of those, in all well, of sure. those sports, I remember going, and I remember how excited I was, uh, and 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 they made a lasting impact on me. And I just, it, it, to me, it's one of those ones where you you wish that kids that are seven, eight, and nine get a chance to do that all the time. And it's just not it, economically, it's it's just starting not to be possible. Well, the intriguing thing is, though, we grew up in an era where you were lucky to get one baseball game a week. That was the Saturday afternoon on TV. game on, t on television. Yeah. yeah. We grew up in, a, in, in Canada where there was no Major League Baseball team. Um, so you adopted a franchise. You only got to see baseball one day, one day a week. Mm -hmm. And it's different now. 
Um, now you can watch a kid can watch baseball 20, almost 24 hours a day, uh, during the entire season of 180 days or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. And hockey's the same. And then you go into football and then you got basketball and you got, and you got everything. And, and maybe you become a fan by watching television. And then when you're old enough and are making enough money to be able to afford to go to a game, that's when you start to go. We didn't have that option. We didn't have enough games on television to really become a fan. You were a fan, I think, if you played the game mm-hmm. for the most part. You can see a lot of hockey games, but you couldn't see a lot of baseball games. You could only see one NFL game a week, provided it wasn't blacked out. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it's a completely different environment altogether. Yeah. And now if the game isn't on television, you're mad. Uh, look, we got about one minute. We want to say congratulations to our pal Gabby. Uh, Bruce Boudreaux goes into Vancouver and completely turns the franchise around overnight. <laughs> well, come on. Come on. Well, I wouldn't put it past him. You know, it's funny. The, the Sunday morning phone call. Hey, Bruce, can you come? I'll be there right away. He, he literally got there that day. He, he was he in got Vancouver. on an airplane. I know the same day. The same day on the Sunday. And, and, uh, and, and they coached the team last night to a, to a shutout victory against the Los Angeles Kings. Um, and the crowd was chanting his name. Chanting well, his name should. at the end. Look, here's what I will say. And I don't know whether you agree with this or not. Coaches come, coaches go. One of the keys for a coach is his likability in terms of the fans. Fans will support a coach they like and will not support a coach they don't like. Bad attitude kind of thing. And I, will go, I won't mention names. I don't think there's anybody that has coached in the National Hockey League that is more likable than Bruce Boudreaux. I just don't. I don't know how you can not like him. Mm-hmm. And, and if you like him, you're going to root for him. And I've rooted for him since I've known him. I've known him since he was, what, 19, 18 years yeah. old? Yeah. And uh, Bruce is approachable. And, and Bruce, Bruce has a love and passion for the game. And, and as, as we've seen on a, even on this show, um, you, you know, is not afraid to say things. And he's very transparent about his love of coaching in the National Hockey League. So, yeah, as much as it hurts uh, guys like Travis Green, who I think is a really good hockey coach, um, I, and I really believe that. And I think Travis Green will be back. Bruce Boudreaux um, might be the right elixir for the Vancouver Canucks at this point in time. Well, we will uh, we'll stay in touch with him and we will uh, observe what happens in Vancouver. Uh, we got to get out of here. Time is our enemy. For John Shannon, Bob McCown, uh, thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.